Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. There are some people who would have you believe it's impossible to support liberal causes and also be a Zionist. Three years ago, I had to make a choice. Would our synagogue continue to push aside our discomfort with the anti-Semitism expressed by the Women's March leadership in deference to what we considered the bigger issues threatening our country? Or would we refuse to stand alongside those who tolerate anti-Semites? We decided to draw a line, and that's how I met Amanda Berman. Zionism is a progressive movement, and you can be, as an American Jew, deeply committed both to social justice here and to Jewish liberation. My first instinct when someone doesn't want me in the room is to say, okay, fine, I'll leave. But Amanda's response is to fight as hard as she can to reclaim progressive spaces for Jews. It's so good to have you back here, Amanda. Welcome to In These Times. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. As you know, I've been an admirer of yours for years. I don't think we have enough Jews in the Jewish community like you. I wanted to ask you at the beginning, before I actually get to your work in uh, Zioness, so you were this brilliant litigator, attorney, and now you're devoting your life to Jewish communal causes. Uh, what caused you to do that? You were on a track to be a hotshot attorney. Why leave it all and do what you're doing? I don't know that I was ever a hotshot litigator or on track to be one. I think I, I thought I would be when I was five or six years old. I thought I, that's how I, where I envisioned myself at some point. And I do love the law and I actually do miss being a lawyer, but actually it helps me every day when I'm crafting arguments and when I am thinking about how to engage someone that may or may not agree with me to try to convince them what I want them to understand from an argument that I may be making. So still glad that I am a lawyer, but the shift really happened uh, very organically. It's actually interesting. I went from being a lawyer on non-Jewish issues to a lawyer on Jewish issues to focusing exclusively on the Jewish issues without the legal part. And it happened because I really felt passionately about this work. And I felt, I don't know if it's fair to say I was called to it, but I saw a void and I saw that no one was stepping into it. And even more than the fact that no one was stepping into it, there wasn't anyone who really could, who lived both in sort of a Zionist worldview and a progressive worldview, who was in the kind of demographic of people that we as a community wanted to reach. And so it happened, I say by accident, and it really was by accident, but thank God it did. I, it's amazing. We're the beneficiaries of that. Tell us about Zionist. What is Zionist? Did you found it? What is its purpose? I founded Zionist in 2017 after a couple of years, really, of feeling alienated from progressive spaces, which were, um, I always joke that I was a Zionist from the day I was born because my grandparents bought Israel bonds for my college education, and I was invested in the state of Israel as an American Jew, and Zionism didn't need to be more complicated for me than that. It just was, you know, in feeling connected to and invested in the Jewish future through the sovereign Jewish state. And as I was growing up, as I was finishing school and, and law school, feeling like I couldn't participate as my full self in spaces for racial justice, of course, for women's rights and reproductive freedom, for every justice issue that I care about, climate justice, LGBTQ equality. I mean, so many of the things, the movements that matter for people that I care about and for the world that I care about, that being a Zionist made me alienated from spaces like that and that I had to sort of hide my Jewish identity in a lot of spaces. And then talking to so many friends who I had done a lot of progressive work with in college and beyond and in, in high school, my family was very involved in progressive politics when I grew up. And so seeing that so many of the people that I had done that work with were also feeling the same way that I was and really wondering how can we 
change this? What can be done? How can we create a community for progressive Jews to continue to be involved in the movements that we founded and led? I mean, you are part of the legacy. Your family is such a huge part of the legacy of civil rights, the Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. And thinking that as Jews, we would have to seed movements that matter so deeply that we've always been on the forefront of because of the intolerance and the anti-Semitism in those spaces was just so far beyond the bounds, so so not possible, so not something that we as a community could allow to happen. Zionist launched really as a response to that, to a series of incidents where Jews were quite literally kicked out, told that Jewish stars are Zionist symbols of racism and oppression, and that people were triggered by seeing Jewish stars on pride flags, for example, because it made people feel unsafe. Of course, Jewish stars being a fundamental symbol of Jewish identity. Zionists happened really organically, and it happened in a way, it got a lot of attention. Uh, we showed up at an event in Chicago called the Chicago Slut Walk that people may have heard of, where they had banned Jewish stars in advance of the event. A friend of mine who does PR said, you need a name and you need a logo and you need t-shirts and posters and a press release and a Facebook page. And we did it in about a week. Really, it was so successful showing up there and not in a way that was intended to be, of course, it was provocative, but it wasn't intended to be argumentative. We weren't going to protest the slut walk. We were going to say, as young people, as progressives, as people who care about fighting patriarchy and victim blaming and slut shaming and want to make sure that women and all people in America can show up in the world and be safe and protect our bodily integrity and autonomy. And we're Jews and we're Zionists and you're not going to kick us out of these spaces and we're not going to leave. And either we can all fight for these issues together or we're going to have to have a conversation about anti-Semitism, which, of course, is going to divide our movements and really harm our prospects at progress. So that's how it really started. And then it got a lot of press in the Jewish world and people started reaching out all over the country saying, I want a Zionist chapter in my community. I want to be trained. I want to show up. I want to be active on progressive issues and I want to be a Zionist and I want to know how to respond to the things I'm going to have to face there. And that was it. Zionist was born. And that was in 2017, you said? It was in 2017, yeah. And I, I was at a different organization for another year and a half and started doing Zionist full-time in January 2019. So it's been five years since the idea was launched and three years since you've been at the helm. And how are you doing? Oh, every day is an adventure here. We just hired several new staff people this summer. They're incredible. And we see the inroads we're making. We hear constantly from people who say, I found home. I was feeling politically homeless. I didn't know where I fit in. I'm progressive. I'm Zionist. I see an intrinsic relationship between those two pieces of my identities. They're inseparable. They make up me. You know, they make up who I am. And there hasn't been a space. So because I came from the Jewish world, when I was launching Zionist, I could see how there were these amazing Jewish social justice organizations doing incredible work for domestic progressive causes and these incredible organizations committed to Zionism and pro-Israel work and, you know, in that part of Jewish identity. But the social justice organizations wouldn't talk about Zionism and the pro-Israel organizations wouldn't talk about social justice. And of course, since the vast majority of American Jews identify left of center involved in progressive activism, ideologically committed to social justice and Jewish universalism, which I know you talk a lot about particularism and universalism, and I love that conversation. Given that we have this dichotomy in our institutional landscape and not this place that brings all of it together that says progressive values are Zionist values. Zionism is a progressive movement, and you can be, as an American Jew, deeply committed both to social justice here and to Jewish liberation. You can fight for liberation for every community, including the Jewish community, which is Zionism. 
You know, I often measure whether I'm on a right track or not by asking our staff here, what does Amanda feel? What does Amanda feel on this issue? Because because I know you're deeply rooted in the liberal tradition and you are yourself on every way you want to measure it, a liberal. And at the same time, I don't know if you confront this, but I get this from time to time. The juiciest, choiciest insult that people who disagree with me and with us can think about and devise and throw at us is something like, oh, well, you're conservative, you know, or oh, she must be a Republican, right? <laughs> and that's the best they can do. As you pointed out, you know a little bit about the background of my family. Uh, my father founded the Religious Action Center, and Martin Luther King used to be a regular guest in the D.C. office. In fact, m much of the civil rights legislation of the 1960s was drafted in the reform movement's headquarters in Washington, D.C. So uh, we are deeply rooted and grounded in liberalism. And I ask our staff here, if, if Amanda agrees with me, then I'm good. Then I think I'm on uh, the right track. And where I especially became a follower of yours was around all of the events of the women's marches after uh, the uh, 2016 election. You really gained prominence nationally by fighting the good fight on behalf of the Jewish community. So help us understand and remind us what was going on at that time. I didn't go to the original Women's March, and it was before Zioness existed. Uh, the Women's March in 2017, I knew that there were people who were calling themselves the leaders who were doing a lot of the national organizing for the Women's March, and they were overtly anti-Semitic. I mean, they weren't shy or quiet about it. There were articles that came out later that basically connected the dots between these four leaders and basically painted a picture that said that anti-Semitism was really one of the kind of foundational connecting pieces among them in the organizing and the creation of the National Women's March. And so I didn't go and I watched it on TV crying. I mean, it was a moment that I think will go down in history that the power of women, the refusal of women to sit down and be silent in the face of what many of us were really afraid would be a massive curtailing of our rights, our bodily integrity. And of course, we see how right we were now in the last few months. So watching that, and it wasn't just in D.C. and it wasn't just in America, it was all over the world, women coming out, women and our allies coming out and saying, we are going to fight for our rights, we are going to fight for our bodies, and, and we're not going to sit back and we're not going to be quiet. So the feeling that I couldn't participate in that as a proud Jew, as a Zionist, being told you can't be a Zionist and a feminist and Zionists are welcome here, um, it ended up in D.C., Angela Davis, who is a prominent activist for racial justice and also known to be overtly anti-Semitic quite often, was on the stage at the Women's March saying horrible things about Israel and, you know, in front of millions of women who were there to talk about women's rights. So what a horrible feeling. And knowing that there were so many people who felt the same way that I did. And then over the course of the next few months, I started to realize that actually if we are staying home from the spaces, if we are ceding progressive movements to bigotry, then actually the bigots win. The best thing we can do is show up and be our full selves and be Zionist and push back and say, how dare you tell us that we can't show up and fight for our rights and our bodies in this country where we live and work and vote. We think about it. What if your father had not been allowed to participate in civil rights activism? The civil rights fight would have been completely different and very likely much less effective. So our involvement as leaders, as progressives, as people who are committed to justice for all communities is pivotal, and we don't have the luxury of staying home, and we also should refuse to leave any piece of our identities at the door. 
the more I became committed to that idea and to organizing Zionist activists around the country to be showing up in all of these different women's marches, I realized actually that the leadership of the women's marches in different cities were distinct almost completely from the Washington, D.C. leadership. And that there were leaders on the state level that were very committed to including the Jewish community and very committed to fighting anti-Semitism within the movements. And they didn't know what to do and they didn't know who to reach out to and they didn't know how to actually stand with the Jewish community. We did a lot of work in not only exposing the problem at the national level, but also building relationships with the leaders on the state levels. And so we ended up doing these teach-ins the week before one of the women's marches, I think it was the third one, it was my first week doing Zionist full time. We had one in Los Angeles on a Sunday night, one in Washington, D.C. on a Tuesday night, and one in New York City on Thursday night, of course, at Stephen Wise. And then the Women's March was on Saturday. And we brought together these panelists, these very diverse progressive leaders who talked about the need to ensure that Jews were not only welcome, but welcome fully and fully participating in progressive coalition building and movement building because the movements won't succeed if we're divided or if anti-Semitism is thriving. Of course, anti-Semitism is a metastatic force that takes down all of the movements when it is thriving within them. The panels were incredible and it brought out the Jewish community to hear from people who were true allies to our community and who really wanted to make sure that Jews were not only feeling welcome, but were actively showing up and participating And it was a breakaway march, really. It wasn't the main Washington, D.C. march. It was something that was mounted in parallel to that as a gesture and as a statement that we believe in the cause, but we don't believe in the leadership or the tone that they're setting. It's so funny. So this comes up a lot. It came up, for example, in a conversation with a Jewish leader that I really respect and admire who didn't like that there was a breakaway because she wanted it to be a unified show of the power of women. And years later, I was talking to her and she said, I didn't appreciate that Zionist was such a leading force in creating a second women's march. And I said, I don't think we did. That. I didn't intend ever <laughs> to do that. You know, we were so busy doing what we were doing. I was not following the inner politics in that moment of what was going on with women's march leadership. But I thought we were participating with the original. I mean, Catherine Simianko was in touch with Rabbi Hirsch. And so when I was in touch with Rabbi Hirsch about hosting our event at Stephen Wise, we all got connected and decided to do the event together. And it was amazing how it happened that way. Catherine had been the founder of the Women's March New York from the original Women's March. I mean, this was year three, but she had been leading Women's March from the beginning in New York City. So then it turned out that the four founders in D.C. who they ended up doing what I see as a breakaway march downtown, which is not where the Women's March had ever been. So they were the ones doing a breakaway, not us. It wasn't. We were doing the same thing. Maybe it wasn't. That's how I saw it at the time, and it's still how I see it unless someone tells me otherwise. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I can tell you from our perspective, we were the only synagogue that I knew about in the uh, reform movement that simply refused to participate in this march for the third year because we had to draw a red line, and the anti-Semitism was just intolerable. Even if we agreed with the overarching goals about our vision for America, if Jews weren't welcome and if part of that agenda was hijacked to launch a vicious attack on the idea of Israel, let alone Israeli policies, then uh, we simply couldn't do it. And I contacted our national leadership in the reform movement and I asked them, what is our position here? We should be advising our congregations not to support the Women's March that was led by these four individuals and to support alternative women's marches along the lines of what we were doing in New York. And so I asked them, what is our position? Their answer was, we have no position. 
Our position is let every synagogue do what it feels is best, which I consider to be a failure of leadership, frankly. There are um, moments when we need to draw a red line, even with respect to potential allies or past allies who have gone beyond what we consider to be minimally acceptable in terms of acceptance of Jews. So that's when I said, well, whatever Zioness is doing, that's what we should do and we should work with them together because I even received some criticism not only about pulling away and we were the only ones who did that to the best of my knowledge, but that it wasn't even my decision to make because I wasn't a woman. So I tell you now, and I told you then, you were very helpful because that was the right way to approach it. It wasn't to reject everything that had been built up in three years. It was to enforce it under another better leadership. Yeah, I think in general, I mean, these are lessons that I've learned, you know, along the way. When there is a space that is so full of passionate activists who care about the right things and what the things that everybody showed up to fight for were issues that are affecting every American woman and women all over the world because America's failure in leadership in protecting women and ensuring health care access, affordable child care, obviously reproductive freedom and access. I mean, we are an embarrassment, frankly at this point for the rest of the world. And that is a horrible thing as an American woman to know and to feel like we are so powerless to control our own destiny. So knowing that there are so many people in that space who are genuinely there for the right reasons and saying, okay, we're not gonna participate is actually harmful for us. And what's interesting is the comments that I get most frequently from people who show up in spaces like this with Zioness and they're carrying a Zioness poster and it says, you know, Zioness is for reproductive freedom or whatever it says. A lot of them are more creative than that and they're cute and funny. We ended up putting a QR code on our posters, on every poster that we print. People always say, I'm scared. I'm nervous to go into the space with a Zioness poster. I really want to. I know why it's important and making people see oh, hey, there's a Zionist here who shares my values. Maybe Zionists are not what you think they are. They're actually literally afraid that someone is going to come up and either yell at them or even hit them. And the overwhelming feedback that I receive is that people have a Zionist poster and they go to a march or a rally and people are fascinated by it. And people come up to them and say, what is that? How do I learn more about it? And so really we put the QR code on so someone can immediately just put their phone up to it and go to the website and learn what Zioness is because the reaction to it is so positive. For me as a Jew, Zionism is the core of my Jewish identity. It's how I feel connected to our history as a people, our future as a people, our peoplehood broadly. So showing up as a Zionist is a way for me to be my full authentic self, change the perception and association of the word Zionism, and bring in more people, because so many people are so interested in learning about Zionists when we get there. And when we stay home, we're not only harming our community, we're letting the bigots win, and we're missing out on the opportunity to find all those people, Rabbi Hirsch, that are looking for us. Because they're there. They're at the Women's March. They're at Black Lives Matter rallies. They care about social justice, and they're showing up. And we can go there and say, see, it's okay to be a Zionist here. It's like getting people to come out of the closet slowly because they see you're there and that you could do it so they could do it too. So is that why you, you fight so hard to reclaim these progressive stances? I totally agree with you. But from a personal perspective, I've always responded to people who don't really want to be in my company and say, okay, great, I'm good, I'll go do something else. And so on a public level, that's actually not your response. Your response is the opposite. Your response is, no, we have to fight as hard as we can to reclaim this space 
because to allow them to expel Jews, to win, what does it do? What are the negative ramifications of that? Well, first of all, of course, it's anti-Semitic. But second of all, it destroys the movements. I get uncomfortable even having to say that because fighting anti-Semitism because it's bad for Jews should be enough because it's dangerous and because of the consequences that we know come from rabid anti-Semitism. It should be enough just to fight anti-Semitism because it's bad for Jews. But not everybody cares about Jews. And people in progressive spaces do care about the success of the progressive movements. So people who are part of racial justice spaces, people who are part of women's rights spaces and LGBTQ equality spaces, they want to make sure that the rights of those communities are protected. And when you have as many examples as we do of anti-Semitism destroying those movements, infecting them, metastasizing and destroying them, I mean, you look at the British Labor Party, the Canadian Green Party, look at the Women's March, look at what happens when people talk about the Women's March. If you Google Women's March right now, you will see more articles about anti-Semitism than about reproductive freedom. You will not see that the Women's March had any impact in its goals, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I'm not saying anti-Semitism is the only one, but when something so problematic, something so deeply bigoted, something that really is actually the animating core of white supremacy is infecting a progressive movement, it's gonna destroy the movement and it's going to embolden white supremacy. White supremacists see the left fighting over anti-Semitism and they're like, the left is never going to be able to organize against us. And it gives the white supremacists power. We have to come together and we have to expel every form of bigotry in our spaces. There's homophobia, there's transphobia, there is racism in our spaces, there is xenophobia in progressive movements. And yes, there's anti-Semitism. Our movements will not succeed until we fight them all. You know, I want to reiterate what you said because I think it is a absolutely key uh, point. As much damage as anti-Semitism causes to the Jewish people, which is reason enough to fight every manifestation of anti-Semitism, it's actually an obligation on our part. But it's not only that. It's in practically every instance, it has destroyed the cause, the organization, the country that was infected by anti-Semitism and decimated it in some ways, either never to recover or not to recover for decades and decades. So I think that's a really key point that you uh, mentioned, Amanda, and it does explain the need to mobilize as a community to fight every expression of anti-Semitism, even in the progressive spaces. So let me ask you then, why do you think this is developing in the progressive spaces? You mentioned Martin Luther King, you know, in that generation, liberals were essentially, they loved Israel. They were pro-Israel. Martin Luther King himself spoke often about Zionism. So what changed and why is it different now? Well, so there's a few things that I would say. The first one is that anti-Zionism, as we see it today, is Soviet propaganda that really had nothing to do with Jews or Israel and certainly had nothing to do with Palestinians. It was about harming American influence in the Middle East and Western influence in the Middle East. So the Zionism is racism resolution was introduced at the United Nations and it became this gigantic manifestation of anti-Semitism with Jews being targeted and attacked with every anti-Semitic trope being used against Israel in a way that for decades and centuries, these tropes had been used against Jewish individuals and individual Jewish communities. Now they were being used for the first time against the Jewish state. It's fascinating to see that trajectory, to see that the way that the Zionism is racism resolution was introduced again as Cold War Soviet propaganda, but it was introduced in relation to 
UN work, supposed work against racialization and racism. So it became part of the narrative of the left, of those who cared about fighting racism. Anti-Zionism got really interwoven into progressive politics, and it's only gotten worse since then. I'll quote my dear friend and mentor, Anat Wilf, who says that Zionism was the unlucky progressive movement that succeeded. And when you know you think about a lot of the way that the progressive worldview manifests, it's in discussions of power and powerlessness. Jews having had absolutely no systemic power for thousands of years before 1948 and now coming into fighting for building, creating systemic power and actually being able to defend ourselves for the first time the power dynamic has shifted. The understanding of who has power and who is powerless has shifted. 73 years of, of Jewish systemic power, and you know it's as if we're the most powerful people in the world. But of course, that is a classical anti-Semitic trope that Jews have all the power. So you know, if you watch how the tropes show up in the way in, in the manifestations of anti-Zionism, it makes a lot of sense. But vis-a-vis the progressive worldview, it relates to power. And certainly Israel has much more power than Jewish people ever did before. But the reason I wouldn't say that it is a reversal, at least when we talk about the left having always been, or at least in the 60s and 70s, having been really supportive of Israel, I do still think the left is overwhelmingly supportive of Israel. I think we have a problem in a part of the left that is becoming more mainstream, and we have to build that firewall, and we have to do it quickly, and we have to be really strong in how we do it. Anti-Semitism appears over and over again everywhere. It shows up everywhere, on the left, on the right, in every society and under every economic system. Anti-Semitism shows up maybe a little bit differently, but always tied to those same classical anti-Semitic tropes. You were recently in, in a crowd that Amnesty International addressed. They came out with their recent report and essentially uh, expressed no opinion on Israel's right to exist and then cast doubt on whether Israel has a right to exist. And you were actually in the crowd when the North American head of Amnesty said that, but what was the reaction to the crowd? What was the crowd comprised of and did they take well to that message? It was a fascinating moment. It was the Women's National Democratic Club in Washington, D.C., and the crowd was more anti-Zionist than Zionist. I think it was a very activist crowd of people who went there to support uh, Paul O'Brien, who is the U.S. head of Amnesty International. And... It was outrageous. It's hard to even express. I'm smiling thinking about it because of how shocking the whole thing was. I had a whole exchange with Mr. O'Brien. We had an email exchange afterward in which my takeaway was really how shocking it was that someone in such a leadership position of such a well-known storied organization, how ignorant he was on the things that he was discussing. So he had said very clearly to a question asked about whether Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. And he said, as you said, that Amnesty doesn't take a position on that. And then I asked him afterward whether Amnesty takes a position on Ukraine's right to exist as Ukraine. And this was in April, this conversation. So it was several weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he said, of course, Ukraine has a right to exist as Ukraine. So I said, so why doesn't Israel have a right to exist as Israel, as what it is, which is a Jewish state? And he said, well, I think states that were peacefully formed. And I, my jaw dropped and I said, name one. And he said, oh, okay, you're right, you're right. Are you a lawyer? That's what he said. I mean, it was hysterical. And the conversation went on and on. So the whole report, Amnesty's whole report, calling Israel an apartheid state, does actually define apartheid properly, which is that apartheid is a racial crime. Apartheid is specifically about 
the racialization of communities. And I am not a sociologist. I don't have science to back this up, but I do not believe you would find a racial distinction between Israelis and Palestinians. And certainly the way I see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of land and religion and history. I mean, there are lots of different ways to categorize the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't believe that race, I don't believe that categorization even applies. So the apartheid term just really doesn't work. He really was not able to engage on those conversations. I kept asking him if he could define the distinguishing racial characteristics of Jews. And of course, he could not do that. So the basic tenets of the argument, he was really not at all prepared to defend. And it was pretty just mind blowing. There were, as I said, also people who absolutely do agree with the apartheid report who went there specifically to support Paul O'Brien and to make sure that he had people cheering for him as he was saying these things. There were Jews in the room who really wanted to make sure that they were stamping, you know, that as a Jew approval on the report. And there were also comments from Mr. O'Brien where he actually said that the focus of amnesty right now, and this is where it became just overt, explicit anti-Semitism, at least the way that I saw it, was that he said that amnesty had a really big focus right now in shopping this report to young progressive Jews that the goal was really to get Jews to sign on because basically they would be able to Jew wash the report and try to get it out into progressive constituencies via Jews within those constituencies. So that to me was one of these moments of like, wow, you are using the Jewish community against itself. You are trying to manipulate young Jews to think that they are on the side of, of righteousness and justice when everything about this report, not everything, actually, there's a lot in the report, having read it, there's a lot in the report that is real. Israel, of course, does a lot of things that I don't like to see, but calling it apartheid and then using Jews to push the apartheid report forward, of course, explicitly anti-Semitic. He did not understand that. So that leads me to my last question for you. What's your message to younger American Jews? Zionism is progressive. Zionism is the epitome of progressive movement building. It is a long persecuted community exiled from our home that has experienced and overcome every kind of oppression and persecution that has existed. Dimitude, slavery, pogroms, obviously genocide. What the Jewish community has been through, the fact that we still exist is such a miracle that Jews could escape the gas chambers, I mean, be able to build a modern state in our ancestral home. It is so miraculous to see what our people have done in the last hundred years. You know, I often think about something that a mentor of mine shared, which is that Israel has existed twice in the past as a sort of independent Jewish polity for longer than 73 years. It's easy to look at it today and say, well, it exists. It's a state. It's going to be fine. No one's going to erase a state from the map, but actually it has existed twice in the past before ceasing to exist. We really can't take it for granted. But even more than that, that being a Zionist is totally compatible and for me totally intrinsic with being a progressive, that I believe in queer liberation, women's liberation, black liberation, Jewish liberation. I believe in and fight for all of these values because I want the world to be better, because it affects me when racism is so out of control and when my LGBTQ friends can't marry each other or have children. And again, I know there are problems like this in Israel too, but I am an American and I am fighting for my values in America because this is where I have a vote and this is really where I have a voice. And so making sure that I'm bringing my identity and making sure that I'm wearing my Zionism, I mean, literally, I basically have it tattooed to my forehead at this point. 
I'm bringing the elephant with me into the room. I'm being the elephant in the room so that people can approach me and say, oh, you're a Zionist. I thought Zionism was this, 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 and this. And I get to actually show them literally by being there and sharing their values what it really is. It takes courage. It takes some you know, fortitude sometimes. You certainly have to be prepared and know how to engage a difficult conversation. But when you're doing that, you can really represent all your values. You can be a Jew who is living the tikkun olam values that we're all born and bred with in America. And you could be a Zionist because you believe in Jewish particulars and because you believe in the Jewish future, because that is part of who you are also. And that is really the best way to guarantee our Jewish future. Well, this has been a fascinating, exhilarating, and exciting conversation. I want to thank you for uh, taking the time. I also want to uh, thank you for being such a bold and articulate leader of the American uh, Jewish community. We're lucky that we have people like you leading us. Thank you, Rabbi. I feel the very same about you. It's a, a privilege to be on your podcast. I look to Amanda Berman and Zioness to center me and to double-check whether it is only me, have I lost my liberal bearings, or has part of the liberal world gone off the deep end? And if Amanda and Zioness agree with my analyses, it comforts me. Then I know I'm still okay. Because we often find ourselves, Amanda and I, in the same predicament. We are strong, committed, ideological liberals who now contend with people who have co-opted the good name and foundational principles of liberalism and besmirch them. Liberals believe in coexistence and reform. We believe in social progress, tikkun olam, repairing the world, not shattering and breaking it. We believe in tolerance. We have a tolerance for debate and competing views because we know it is only through disagreement and deliberation that we can evolve into a better society. We do not shut down debate. We do not elevate feelings over facts. Liberals respect facts. We value truth. We do not simply make things up or lazily mischaracterize and misapply flawed and false analogies. Liberals do not think in all or nothing categories. I am right, you are wrong, and if you do not agree with me, it is ipso facto evidence of how morally and intellectually flawed you are. Engaging such people for us is highly frustrating. They seem impervious to logic or reason. They will not change their minds and will not change the subject. A true liberal is always open to persuasion. Liberals should be the first to recognize the illiberalism of anti-Zionism. When anti-Zionists proclaim Palestine free from the river to the sea, they mean the destruction of the world's only Jewish state and the ethnic cleansing of the Jews of Israel. Are anti-Zionists and their supporters against ethnic cleansing except when it comes to the Jews of Israel? As Amanda so eloquently expressed, Zionism is a liberal philosophy. It is about self-determination for the Jews. Of course, Israeli society is not perfect. Of course, there is so much work to do in the fields of human rights, civil rights, and reaching a permanent peace with the Palestinians, who, by the way, need to want to reach peace as much as the Israelis do, and in this respect, they still have a long way to go. But really, we shouldn't have to say every time we discuss Israel that Israel is not perfect. It is implied in its very nature of being a human endeavor. America is not perfect either. Neither is Canada, France, Germany. And I have been told 
that even Finland is not perfect. I'm not sure about that, but that's what some people told me. And you know what? Even the Palestinians are not perfect. So I've acknowledged again, it is true that Israel is not perfect. But what Amanda said about Israel is also true. It is a cold heart, a heart of stone, that is unmoved by the story of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. We Jews are notoriously hard on ourselves. We are relentlessly self-critical. But to truly know ourselves, we must also be conscious of our greatness. The return of the Jews to Zion is a miracle of biblical proportion, the likes of which have not been witnessed in the whole history of civilization. Our people has raised Zion from desolation and made it live again. The song of the turtle dove is heard throughout the land. The green figs weigh heavy on the fig trees. The vines in blossom give off fragrance. The mountains drip wine, and the hills wave with grain. The promised land has become a land of promise. Israel has more institutions of higher learning per capita, more scholars, more researchers, more engineers, more orchestras, than practically any other place on earth. Israeli innovation is part of our cell phones, computer security systems, medical equipment, and agricultural machinery. But more than anything else, more than the enormous intellectual, political, financial, moral, social, legal, and humanitarian progress, Israel restores our capacity to believe in great things. It reminds us that we are part of a bigger story. It compels us to hope, to dare, and to accomplish. We stand taller in America because of what our people has accomplished in the promised land at an enormous cost in blood, sweat, and tears. Imagine what could be accomplished if only there were peace. The Jewish people's craving for life is indomitable. They left us for dead, tortured on the crosses of the Inquisition, bleeding on the steps of the Pale, incinerated in the furnaces of Europe, despised and discriminated against in the lands of the Crescent. But our people has survived it all and found ways to contribute to humanity, unbowed and unbroken, ever determined to continue the journey. In the words of the prophets of old, I will put my breath in you and you shall live again, and I will set you upon your own soil. I will restore my people Israel. They shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, they shall till gardens and eat their fruits, and I will plant them upon their own soil, never more to be uprooted from the soil I've given them. Until next time, this is In These Times.